0: Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our Board President, Doug Leeds. Welcome to today's program, where we will be covering commercial theatre off-Broadway.
1: We'll be back later to tell you more about the work of the American Theatre Wing. But right now, please join us for another edition of Working in the Theatre.
2: You're watching The Great Standard. Try to remember from the new off Broadway production of the record setting musical, The Fantastics. The 42 year run of that show's original production was a unique theatrical achievement. These days, it's hard and rare for a commercial off Broadway production to sustain any kind of run. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today, we're going to explore the state of commercial off Broadway to find out whether it's healthy sluggish, or as some have suggested, in crisis. With us today are Mark Routh, producer of the new production of The Fantastics and president of the League of Off-Broadway Theaters and Producers. Ken Davenport, producer of the current Off-Broadway hit Alter Boys and creator, producer, and director of The Awesome Eighties Prom. Nancy Nagel Gibbs, producer of Bat Boy the Musical and Fully Committed, and general manager of the Vagina Monologues and I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change and Alan Schuster, a partner in the new off-Broadway complex 37 Arts and producer of Marvin's Room, Oleana, and Jeffrey. If we read the trade publications and periodically the New York Times, people want to suggest that Off-Broadway's in trouble. Mark, I'm going to start with you as the president of the league and just say, are there problems? I think there are problems.
3: Uh, the The economics are certainly challenged at this point. Uh, it, it, on the other hand, you know, everybody is always signaling the death knell for off Broadway, for Broadway, for the musical. You know, we hear how we're always in trouble, and, and that's why I think you know theater is called the imaginary invalid or the you know the ever, ever much uh, malign theater, the fabulous, in the the fabulous fa- invalid. Inval- that's it. That's it. But the thing is that um, what Off-Broadway is, is, is always changing. And I think we go through cycles. There are cycles of uh, Broadway, too, you know, where all of a sudden things seem to be working economically. I, thi- I think that we're probably on the cusp of the pendulum swinging the other way and Off-Broadway starting to work again, because I think some of the things that are happening in the Broadway theatre are gon- going to affect that. The shows are running longer. It's much, much harder to get a theatre. Um, the musicals have to be done in the straight playhouses, so it's very likely that, therefore, straight plays that would have done on Broadway are gonna start to be done off-Broadway once again, which, as I've always thought, that that's one of the best places to watch a, a, a play as opposed to a musical, because of the intimacy and how, how wonderful that experience is.
2: Alan, you've been part of this scene since the 70s. Do you uh,
4: agree with Mark's assessment? Well, generally, I agree with Mark's assessment. I, I mean, you know, having uh, been in this business for, for so long, I've seen every cycle come and go. And, and you know, the New York Times will cycle one year in and, and the dire strait of Off-Broadway, and then a year and a half later, we'll have an article about how great Off-Broadway is. So uh, this is neither the, the worst of times nor the best of times. I've certainly seen several other periods in which it has been far worse. When I started in the mid-'70s, two-thirds of the off-Broadway theatres were dark. In 1988, half the off-Broadway theatres were dark. We're nowhere near that situation now. Now we have a slight oversupply in, in new theatres. So you know, we normally have one or one-and-a-half hits per year off-Broadway. I mean, let's Remember that in the theatre world at large, uh, only one out of ten shows succeed, so uh, on on that basis uh, uh, it takes a while to fill new theatres. We've had, over the last three years, twelve new theatres come onto the off-Broadway scene. We've now in the last year had eight go away, so we're starting to move towards equilibrium. Uh, once we reach that equilibrium, I think, we're, as Mark says, we're on the cusp of the cycle turning the other direction. I do want to correct one thing that was said in the introduction. There are a lot of shows running for a long time off-Broadway. Uh, Mark and I are involved in *Stop*. It's, it's been running 12 and three-quarters years now. Nancy, I Love You, Perfect, Not Change. It's been running a long time. Ten. Blue
2: Man has been running for 14 years. Alter Boys has been running for... A year and a half now. Well, Alter Boys certainly, and I wasn't suggesting that there aren't those long established hits, but Alter Boys is certainly the newest show, one of, or one of the new shows, which seems to have got itself a good foothold. And again, listening to what people say in the press, those are harder to come by. It's not necessarily the case. In terms of establishing Alter Boys,
5: but they've always been hard to ch- come
2: by. Yeah. Yeah,
5: I mean, I've been very fortunate in my career. I worked on the original Little Shop of Horrors. Alan and I worked on it together, Off-Broadway in the um, early eighties. That ran for five years, which was quite a phenomenon at the time. Nonsense was running at that time. That was a long-running show. Um, I also w- have been very fortunate to work on um, Della Guarda, which ran for about uh, six years and falls into the, the model of Stomp and Blue Man. Um, in that they're uh, event shows, in a way. They're not as necessarily union-burdened, and not that the union burden is necessarily a bad thing, but when the show is not burdened with the unions, there sometimes is a freedom to do things that, that you may not be d- able to do. But they're, they're event-driven, and and they're great shows to bring kids to, they're great shows to bring young people to. Um, so uh, there have always been long-running shows, and there have always been a lot of shows that open and close.
2: Is the, is the event-driven model proving to be more prevalent now than it might have been?
6: I'll, I'll address that. I mean, wh- what's interesting about what Alan said is absolutely there are a lot of long-running shows, but if you listen to, to the list, that it's Stomp, it's Blue Man. It's The Awesome Prom, which is in its third year, Tony and Tina's Wedding, which is in its eighteenth year or something, unbelievable. Even I would say, you know, I love you, you're perfect, is not – it's the tradi- what, what worries me about the state of Off-Broadway, while I'm uh, an eternal optimist, um, is, is the traditional musical or the traditional play is having difficulty uh, nice. getting a foothold. Even Ultra Boys, which is, you know, I say to people all the time, and I actually did it in a lot of my negotiations with vendors and everyone, I said, you know what? You name me the last off-Broadway book musical that recouped its investment in, in this period of time, and I'll pay you whatever you want. I'll pay you double, because no one can do it. I mean, Ultra Boys has been running for a year and a half. The last musical to run that long to open is I Love You're Perfect. It's ten years ago. Look at that theatrical index. There are no other musicals running in between ten years and a year-and-a-half, more traditional.
4: Can are there any shows that you can think of that have opened and closed that should still be running, that have a sufficient quality to, to merit the audiences? I
5: hate that argument, Alan, <laughs> mean, I <laughs> I <laughs> that if they're good enough, they'll bubble up. I, I don't know if that's always true. I think there's some, vo- there's some validity to that but we 're all very biased and very passionate about the shows that we do, and I do think that um, um, I, um, I do think that off Broadway has lost its ability to do the Little Shop of Horrors of today. Little Shop of Horrors had I believe fifteen equity members and um, Relatively simple physical production compared to what we're doing today. Um, Bat Boy was on that model. I did Bat Boy in 2001. Um, Bat Boy, we just squeaked out where the figures were in August of 2001. It was like, we are home free. All we have to do is get through September, and we're running because we had built, it taken us six months to build, which is what it takes an off Broadway show to build, is at least used to take three months. Now it takes six months to build an audience. So it's very difficult to sustain your costs for that long. So it we are losing that niche. And so then when Avenue Q comes along, they didn't move it to Off-Broadway, they moved it to Broadway. When Spelling Bee came along, we moved it to Broadway, because once it had its reviews and its audience, it's like, we need to be able to sell this out on the weekends, and the weekdays don't
2: matter. And we're even seeing shows that were very successful, Off-Broadway shows a generation ago – you mentioned Little Shop of Horrors, I'll also mention Steel Magnolias – that when they're revived, are not coming back to Off-Broadway, they're going to Broadway. Is that purely a product of costs, it or th- can you not produce those shows off-Broadway Sorry. No. It's
6: I, it's a, I think a lot of that has to do with the, the marketing attention, the advertising attention that you can you can get. I mean, it's, it's one of those situ- – you know, we struggle for that. We opened in uh, March of 05. And to try and get someone to pay attention to an off-Broadway show when everyone's gearing up for the Tony Awards and that marketing machine, um, it's, it's very difficult. So a lot of it, it's just much easier. Listen, people come into town and they say – I had a group the other day in the lobby of Alter Boys looking – they were about to buy. And suddenly they said, oh, it's off-Broadway? We had to walk a long way to get to this theater. Now, we're actually pretty close. New World Stage is close. We, we're from Ireland. We want to go see a Broadway show. And I was well, why don't you see this show? It's, you can't even see this. We'd rather go see The Lion King. The interesting thing is The Lion King is playing much closer to Ireland than Alter Boys will ever play, probably. But they, they had this this idea in their head that they wanted to see something Broadway-related. Hmm. M-
2: Mark, you wanted to respond when, to, the, to the question about the revival certainly
3: yeah, revolved y- in Little yeah, Shop right. on the Broadway. I, I actually worked as the uh, press assistant, which is when I first met Nancy <laughs> um, on the original Little Shop, and then I produced the revival, and uh, I, and, and I have produced a number of shows that uh, that would fall into the category of small musicals. Smokey Joe's Cafe is a show that we originally, when we first thought of the idea, thought it might play in an off-Broadway theater. And, you know, when it finally came to producing it, you know, we felt not only did it have to be in a Broadway theater, but it had to be in a Broadway theater of a certain size because of, you know, what, what we were ultimately trying to do. Little Shop is a huge anomaly. It's, when you talk about, there hasn't been a show <laughs> since Little Shop. Little Shop is the only <laughs> off-Broadway show that I know of that's a traditional book musical. The other successful musicals, if you look at the canon of off-Broadway shows, are Nonsense, Forever Plaid, um, I love you. I love you, and um, you know, and, and those are the sh- those are the musicals that I know that recouped and made a significant profit. There are a few others. I think Hedwig recouped, but you know, it didn't run a pr- particularly long time, and you know, wasn't a huge money maker. It, you know, it had a very significant run, but there are very very few musicals, and I think that they're all. We, we, we refer to them in our office as sort of that, that fish that somehow manages to exist at the bottom of the Hudson River. You know, it, it, it sort of has morphed into some strange being to actually live and breathe and succeed. And and that's, you know, so I think the Off-Broadway musical specifically is a very amorphous thing. And it's—we've it, and, and, uh, it's, tried quite a few times. I mean, I produced um, Das Barbecue with Alan, Inside Out. Um, Song of Singapore, a show that I loved and was very proud of, and, you know, just, it ultimately didn't work. And I think, you know, that, that there is something about the economics of off-Broadway musicals, specifically, that makes it very, very difficult.
4: Well, the event shows, as, as, as Nancy called them, the Stance, the, the, Stons, the Blue, Blue Man, the De La Guadars, are, are, are are as close to musicals as you, as you can get, w- without having traditional book or p- traditional uh, lyrics uh, and in many ways they've replaced the the, the probably musicals of, of my youth the you know the little Mary Sunshines and uh, uh, your own things and those shows which which had good runs but but let's define what a good run was then and what a good run I- I- is now in in those days if a show ran a year that was a tremendous run if it ran a year and a half it was fantastic. Uh, uh, if it ran two years, unbelievable. Little, uh, Fantastics is, is, is an anomaly. But uh, now we expect hit shows to run
2: five years. Uh, uh, and, and is that because we look at the Broadway model and feel that Off-Broadway has to measure up to the same situation? No, uh, I, I don't
4: think it's necessarily the Broadway model. It is the model uh, uh, of of the world, you know, in terms of establishing a brand and, and the brand having identification with the public and being able to, for want of a better word, exploit that brand over a longer period of time. Because once you establish its identity, uh, uh, the identity takes care of itself and it markets itself to a large degree and as long as you keep fulfilling the public uh, in terms of the quality of the show i mean one of the great things about stomp is our creators have never abandoned the show and we're all used to directors after a year or so it's the second stage manager who's keeping the show in, in in shape uh as long as you can keep the show delivering the goods night after night i think you can keep getting audiences come back to it. Once you take your eye off the ball and, and the quality of the show begins to dissipate, even slightly, uh, 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 then that show's days are numbered, uh, uh, and, and uh, the audience will move on. They're, they're, they're much more attuned to the quality levels of shows than we ever give them any respect for.
2: There's an irony to me in this issue of the event shows, because some of the ones you mentioned, like Stomp and Blue Man Group and De La Guarda, that's material that 20 years ago might have been thought of even as performance art, and suddenly it's become the successful, com- the most successful commercial. Well, work 50 years Broadway. ago it might
4: have been referred to as vaudeville, but you know, uh, <laughs> or 75 years ago. Uh, uh, y- yes, except that, that that there are linkages and an arc to to to, to th- those shows. Uh, uh, that that don't exist in the kind of performance art world. Uh, 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 If if somebody smarter than I could give you an analysis of of why De La Guarda or Stomp or Blue Man work, I think they could take it apart and deconstruct it and show you a a really... Wonderful structure beneath that uh, uh, the piece, which, which pulls the audience along. Well,
5: I mean, I have a theory about that, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean you can clone it. That's right. the problem, well, because the, in, in all of theater, you can't clone. Uh, what, was, what were hits, whether it's on Broadway or Off-Broadway. You can't say, okay, I'm going to be the producer of a new Off-Broadway show that came to me and said, I want to be just like Little Shop of Horrors. I said, you can't. Right. Because that was twenty-five years ago, and you're, you're not going to be able to, to make that model. Even two years later, nobody could. But we're we live in a world where Everything in showbiz is immediately available to us. We can get almost every movie, every TV show, whenever we want it on demand. So, whether it's Netflix or Nickelodeon or whatever it is, so the theater has to be able to set itself apart from that. We have to do what we um, do differently than. Um, TV and movies, and that is about having a live experience with a bunch of other people in the audience who act, interact emotionally, usually with the audience that sets us apart, and that's what those three shows do. But it's also what spelling bee does. I think it's what um, what the the big Broadway shows do as well. So it's we need to cultivate that which can't be cloned on TV. I mean, I think alter, um, alter Voice is that way, is that you have to be in the room to really experience that, and that's what makes, sets us apart. But I don't know how to clone it. I don't know how to tell an author and creatives how to w- make that happen. It's something that's organically in the material, and hopefully we as producers spot it and can make it economically viable in order to make it happen. Well,
4: I'm y- sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, to comment on something Nancy said. I mean, the, the essential difference between the theatre and every other medium I- is the theatre is, is, a, is a writer's medium. Uh, you know, the ownership of the material rests with the authors. Uh, uh, we can try and change the material as producers, but we don't own it. It's not like the movie business in which the material is owned by, by the producers. So even if we wanted to clone it, it's going to come out as somebody's vision, because it's a, usually a single author who, who's developing that. Musicals are much more collaborative uh, than straight plays, but uh, e- even there, it it
2: is the vision of the author, lyricist, and composer that, that comes through, not our vision. Well, since you mentioned straight plays, because that's really the first time so far that that's come up, we've talked about event shows, we've talked about musicals, per se. Certainly, there was a time when we would see c- commercial runs of things like Pete Gurney's plays coming out of Playwrights Horizons, or I mentioned before, Steel Magnolias. What's the prognosis – Other People's Money, which played in, in one of your theatres – what's the prognosis for plays off-Broadway as commercial runs? Did, is um, that I mean, still I I think what Mark,
5: Mark is talking about is, is going to happen, is the pendulum uh, as the Broadway theatres fill. And right now, they're filled, and in the 80s, they weren't. They weren't even close to being filled. Uh, but now, almost, I believe there, there's one, one, maybe two Broadway theatres that don't have something in it or about to be in it. Um, and as the Broadway theaters fill, and as the runs get longer there 's not going to be a place to do the plays, and I think it's the pendulum will swing them back into off Broadway potentially
4: yeah, um, We have an inherent difficulty, which is the nonprofits, which used to be a, a large uh, uh, place from from which most of the straight plays came to the commercial opera houses, have found. It more beneficial for themselves in terms of fundraising and identification to, to try to move those shows to Broadway. And there are a number of inexperienced producers that have taken those shows and moved them to Broadway because they can. Uh, uh, and the difficulty with that I- is most of those shows do not do well in large Broadway houses. They lack the intimacy, uh, the relationship between the audience and, and, and the show is not as good as it is in an off-Broadway situation. So. Plays like Lieutenant uh, uh, that th- the move to Broadway in, in this season, or I- even a show as successful as I Am My Own Wife could probably still be running in an off-Broadway situation. But we don't control the nonprofits, and, and they have other uh, needs and desires. I, I think ultimately they may make a financial decision and say, you know, it might be better to have a show running a year and a half and receive royalties. Off that show than rushing to try to get that initial burst of publicity. But
2: that is a difficulty for us. As we talk about sort of the perceptions of Broadway and off Broadway, and you're talking about size, there is a study commissioned by the League of Off-Broadway Theaters and Producers and the Theatre Development Fund. And within that study, they brought out some points that that they discovered in asking audiences what the difference between Broadway and Off-Broadway is, and indeed what the positive elements for Off-Broadway is. And there were six points. No crowds, no tourists, the work is more offbeat and less commercial, the work is more interactive, the sight lines are better, and the audiences have better theatre manners. Do you think that really is the reality of going to Off-Broadway, or is that a perception based even on what Off-Broadway might have been a while ago? I think
3: what a lot of those comments speak to is that the audience that goes to Off-Broadway is um, a niche audience. I mean, it is, it is, in general, I would say a bit more sophisticated than Broadway. You're looking at sort of a narrower skew. So those are people um, who are, You know, New Yorkers, and I mean, a a lot of the uh, the audience is skews much more uh, local off Broadway because you have to know about it. I mean, one of the challenges that we have as producers is to to let people know about our shows, and especially off Broadway, we've got limited dollars. We can't (coughs) uh, a Broadway show will spend seventy five thousand, a hundred thousand dollars a week to advertise. We spend somewhere between six thousand and twenty thousand dollars a week to advertise you know and and i think there aren't a lot of shows they can afford to spend twenty thousand dollars a week so um you know by that very fact we are limited in our ability to reach out to people so people have to do a little more work and find us and the people that are going to be able to do that are more likely to be New Yorkers, as Ken's experience when he was talking about Alter Boys and the audience, you know, the people who were, think- were said, oh, I need to have a Broadway experience. When people come to New York who are tourists, they want a Broadway experience. And one of our challenges is to tell them, hey, you should try an off-Broadway experience, and that's something that, you know, is certainly a goal of ours. But how realistic that is, How, how you know, if we can actually convince people, you know to go to an off Broadway show that that has to be part of their new york visit um, i don 't know how you know how well
4: we'll succeed we'll, we'll take our show stomp which which, which attracts a lot you know it, I generally agree with that list of stuff, but then again uh, every one of those things uh, 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 there are exceptions to uh, I mean the stomps and blue men's uh, uh, we have no dearth of tourists coming to those shows uh, The difference is I think that that If you hear that your cousin is coming in and you say, God, what show can I sit through again uh, uh, that I would enjoy to see, uh, uh, the chances are better that a native New Yorker is gonna wanna take somebody to a stomp.
2: how do you get the message out? In the case of Alter Boys, you didn't have a cast that was known, you didn't have certainly a title that anybody had heard before, you had a concept, you had an idea. How did you go about building awareness for that show? Well, the first,
6: I think the first answer to that is, you have to realize, as you know, Alan said in the beginning, we, we get about one, maybe two hits a season. I disagree only because I judge HIT a little bit more on the economic viability of a show.
2: The old rule of thumb of whether it recoups or as not?
6: As to somewhat. I mean, and there is this where we – you know, I sat down at a union negotiation where I said, okay, we have to address certain issues. And the representative turned to me and said, well, come on, everyone knows you can't make any money off Broadway. now." I was shocked at that statement, because that, while there may be some, a, a reality to that in the, in the last 10 years or five years, certainly some people are. And also that kind of complacency is exactly what I believe we need to start to fix in order to continue to swing this pendulum back the other direction. And part of fixing that, I mean, what there is, when you get to a certain point, you, you develop attraction. I mean there's no question, the brand awareness comes mm-hmm. after time. That's right. There's no coincidence that most of these off-Broadway musicals plays are closing within a three month period. Because the economics are so difficult, they can't they can't make it over that hum. Hump. I actually think it took Alter Boys a year for the word of mouth to kick in. It's not six months anymore. It's a year. And most shows can't function economically for that period of time. If we can find a way to make this model work, if these shows can run longer then they will last longer and hopefully hit that level of, of recruitment, And I, and part of that, th- about Alterboy specifically and about how we got the word out, we do a lot of different things. I mean, a lot of it was we hear the same things from the advertiser. Okay, here's the big direct mail, here's this, here's that, and the New York Times and all this. And we did it at the beginning. And th- what we saw was it wasn't coming back fast enough. It just wasn't. We had an unbelievable – we did a focus group for Ultra Boys at the beginning, and the, what I was most pleased about was we had a, like a 68 percent awareness of the show, which was fantastic in like the first three months. Only about four to five uh, percentage points off from Spelling Bee. Big Broadway show, big advertising budget. There was an awareness, but we were still very to the bottom of people's must-see list. And what was above were all the Broadway shows. So we had to figure out a way to, one, to notch ourselves up that list. Number one, to notch yourself up, you just got to stick around for a long period of time. And then we went in a totally aggressive, uh, much more guerrilla and very internet, um, you know, aggressive campaign um, that, you know, was talked about in the New York Times. We do a ton of not only email blasts but social peer-to-peer networking, all that sort of thing. Um, we have an exclusive fan site called alterholics.com. We noticed the rabid fan following of the show. And I'm a big believer in what I call fan the flame marketing. When you see a little something, you go blow on it so that hopefully it will explode. And we gave them this exclusive site where they could, people who are looking for a community. And we gave them a site where they could talk about it and <coughs> spread the word about it. All just because this site was there for them. And that's part of this new economic model that is necessary. Ads in the Times for Alter boys they don't pull. They don't do it. So why would we? And we have to find other ways to do it. And we have to tell our vendors and the ad agencies and everyone, saying, you know what, the old model isn't working, we've got to find some new way.
2: Nancy, with a long-runner like I Love You You're Perfect that changed, how long did it take for that to it hit actually took stride? It,
5: it did take a year um, for I Love You You're Perfect. What I Love You You're Perfect has that um, if you go to see a show that's called "I Love You, Perfect Now Change," you are not disappointed because if that's a show that you chose to go through, you know it's about relationships and you know it's funny, and so it became a, the str- a straight date musical in the um, ten years ago, and that was a, a rarity at the time, um, and so it. But it took a year. It did take a year. It, it, it took a TV campaign. TV is very different today. Uh, we're, when uh, we started in the business, you know, I was, start, was in the early 80s, um, you, we did Little Shop of Horrors had a, a dedicated TV campaign. There was a certain amount of money set aside for TV every week. It was a brilliant commercial that they did, right. but there were only five channels. Now, where do you go on TV? It's very difficult. So we need to enter a world of what Ken's doing, which is permission marketing. We need to go to people who want – find a way to get to the people who want us. And the internet offers us that opportunity, but it is so difficult to figure out how to navigate through it, and that still takes time. It's still not overnight. Um, So that's tricky. also, I mean, I, the, the biggest concern I have is that the economic model is real is broken. doesn't mean that, that hits don't happen. Ticket prices are too high. Off-product ticket prices are now $75 top price because you need to sell discounts. And so if you're going to send a discount, you need to make the high price high enough so you can discount it so you're still getting money, so you're not selling $12 tickets because showcases allow you to do $12 tickets, but you can never make your money back. Um, so the ticket prices are high. Um, the, the des- we're now getting Broadway designers who are working off-Broadway. They have huge physical productions. I mean, when we started off-Broadway, I mean, and we did, I mean, we, weren't, we were uh, like a second wave of off-Broadway. I mean, people, it was a second job. The reason that you did four shows on the weekend, uh, two Saturday, two Sunday, because half the people on the show worked ev- all week at a regular job, and they they did it out of love and passion and lunacy, um, and everybody because you couldn't make any money, even if you were on an equity contract. Um, so it's it's tricky. So that the the economic model is something we have to address, and I don't know where to begin.
2: But has there been more of a merging of the perception of Broadway and off-Broadway, notwithstanding the Irish people who heard they were off-Broadway and wanted to get out. I don't think so. I think out. they're
5: very separate audiences. Very separate audiences. I mean, sure, there's an overlap, but uh, there the, I think there are a lot of tourists who I want to go to a Broadway show.
2: So, so who's coming to STOMP or I Love Your Perfect Now change ten years on? A lot of tourists.
5: I think a lot of tourists, but again, can you hang on long – I mean, Ken should begin to be tapping into that, because he's been around long enough after a year and a half.
6: It's what interesting about that study, to quote some of the, the other stats in there, is there was uh, – I, c- I took all the stats from that study and compared it to Broadway stats, actually. Because while Broadway – Broadway's economic model is certainly challenged as well.
2: We hear it all the time.
6: Exactly. I mean, th- it's a very difficult industry, and we tend to get – off Broadway tends to get trickle down audiences, and we get trickle down economics. So our our if their Broadway economic models challenge ours is even more. Our audiences come from them. When the Broadway shows are sold out, then we start to sell more. There's no question. And w- so what I did was lay those stats um, side by side. We get 10 percent more males off Broadway than uh, on Broadway. We get 10 percent less tourists, and there is. Uh, in my mind, there's a that's the, there's a I call it the magic ten percent because everyone got excited. Oh, and ten percent our our age demographic is is younger, and everyone kind of got excited. Like we're oh we're we're younger and we're getting males and we're getting locals. And what I said is wait a minute we're not getting females. We're not getting a slightly older and we're not getting um, those tourists which make Broadway function. There is that, you know, and this advertising agencies will tell you all the time, And there is some truth to that about the average, typical theatre-goer. You know, the 55-year-old woman, the 45-year-old woman, etc. And that chunk is missing from Off-Broadway based on those stats. And we have to figure out a way. And this is where it's – Off-Broadway has always been this place where let's risk, let's do things different. The awesome 80s prom, let's do things where bachelorette parties can go and have a great time. we also need to find a way to continue to make it more economically viable, to make sure we're accessible at the same time and not pushing a certain sector away.
4: I I, I disagree with you. Uh, 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 Making it accessible would would make us into an adjunct of Broadway, and making us as an adjunct of Broadway, we will never win that that battle, Uh, because Broadway's always going to win. They're always going to have more money and more accessibility to the media. Uh, uh, We need to define ourselves for what we do best, which are are more uh, 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 cutting-edge, I think more sophisticated, uh, uh, more intelligent material. I don't think if we broaden out our material and try to get the 45- to 55-year-old woman, we're going to succeed in in that battle. I I, I think, uh, you know, we talk about getting a new economic model. What I think we need is an old economic model, which is the impassioned – uh, producer taking full control over the, the production and trying to figure out every possible way of selling tickets. One of the things, one of the lethargies that, that Off-Broadway settled into over the last ten years wa- was uh, almost a Broadway corporate attitude towards producing. You know, I'll pick up nine producers and, and we'll hire a general management f- firm and we'll let the general managers uh, provide the direction for the show. There are some really good general management firms, but there's no general manager that's ever going to replace the passion of, of a producer or, or, or the drive of a producer to get his or her show seen by, by, by the audience. I, I don't think that we can try to replicate ourselves as, as Broadway. I think uh, uh, doing edgier material would be better for us. Trying to find the plays that, that uh, new playwrights that Broadway won't touch is what Off-Broadway did for for decades and succeeded in.
3: Well, I mean, any play is a play that Broadway won't touch. (laughs) Broadway doesn't do plays unless stars are in them, you know? And I think what Off-Broadway can theoretically afford to do are plays that are good plays. But it is very different today than it was twenty years ago. I mean, the the shows that my partners uh, produced in the early eighties, which were all transfers from not-for-profit theaters, Frankie and Johnny and the Clair de Lune, Driving Miss Daisy, The Cocktail Hour. um, You know, those were all successful shows. I mean, they were commercially successful. They recouped their investment. They made profits. Um, As the the 80s wore on (laughs) and we got to the 90s, our shows that we transferred from the not-for-profit didn't succeed. And that, you know, and that uh, led us to say, hmm, I don't, you know, it, and maybe it was just the shows, you know, maybe, and because that happens, you know, some, some shows are more commercial, some shows work, some shows don't, the audiences are engaged or not, but it definitely, there was, there was something that happened where, um, the audiences weren't coming in the numbers that it would take to recoup, and, and, um, I, I you know, I, but I, like I said, I, I do think that the pendulum will switch, swing back, um. There was a period that isn't that long ago, which was right before Broadway sort of got healthier, where you couldn't get an off Broadway theater as a producer. Um, I had a show that needed a theater, and we waited a year and a half for a theater. And another show, you know, we, we, we were constantly signing backup contracts for theaters because we just couldn't get an available theater. And then one day that changed, <laughs> you know, and it was sort of overnight, and <laughs> it became, uh, you know, any show that you had, you could go to every <laughs> theatre owner and say, I have this show, and they would engage in a, in a discussion. We're not – we're somewhere better than that today, you know, because it's not, it's not quite that simple. So
2: we'll, we'll see. You know, stay tuned. <laughs> well, on that note, we're going to take a very short break and hear a little – more about the work of the American Theatre Wing.
0: The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence, and we support education in the theatre.
1: Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York.
0: These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequaled forum for discussions with today's most creative artists.
1: Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM satellite radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars.
0: Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network.
1: And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country.
0: All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, AmericanTheatreWing.org.
1: Now let's return to the seminar.
4: God put the rhythm in me. Put it in me. God put the rhythm in me. God put
3: the rhythm in me. God put the rhythm in me. God put
5: the rhythm in me. Put it, put it, put it, put it. God put the rhythm in me. God put the rhythm in me. God put the rhythm in me. God put the rhythm in me.
2: just been looking at a little bit from Alter Boys, the Off-Broadway musical. And we were talking earlier about the establishment of a brand, Off-Broadway. And Alter Boys is now set to go out on tour. We certainly hear things about tours being challenging, even sometimes for certain Broadway shows, going out, if they don't have a star, can they tour? Does success for some Off-Broadway productions really come when it reaches that point with a brand that it is indeed known and then it can go out and in fact can it do better once it's left new york than it actually can do here
6: well i i literally just got off a plane two hours ago from the opening in chicago and i can tell you that we're one of the things i'm most excited about the show is just that we in new york about 2400 people see the show on a weekly basis last night at the la salle bank theater in chicago 1,700 saw it in one night. I mean, the, you know, this 10 to 1 ratio of exposure, and we all know that word of mouth is what sells tickets. Um, Of the number of people literally seeing my show, as well as the advertising materials now all over the country, I have this belief in kind of a connect the dots type of approach of brand, where now there's, there's, where I can't, those tourists that keep the New York theater scene going, I mean, that's why after 9-11, they would come to New York and see a Broadway show, because without those tourists, we were in a very difficult situation. I need those people to keep Alter Boys running. I can't survive on just the locals, because our locals are, are very smart and very whimsical, and they're always on to the next coolest thing. And it will be hard to sustain them. So I need all those people around the country. And what the tour, which is a entirely uh, – it's actually an off-Broadway model economically on the road, very different. Because we faced, when we were trying to sell it, we had this award-winning musical comedy and everyone was raving about it. And of course, presenters around the country said, yeah, but, you know, my folks in Birmingham may not know about it. And what we decided to do was, you know, price it v- so economically that it was a way for them to r- seriously reduce the risk. And we, at the same time, had the ability to expose our brand. And hopefully, I can't wait to see what happens in the next six months to a year with Alls of Boys here in New York, when a half a million people see the show over those thirty weeks, where it takes, you know, a year and a half to do that.
2: And yeah. when it tours, is it playing venues where it's on a season at a performing arts center along with those Broadway tours? Yeah. At that point, does the perception completely Absolutely. get
6: erased? And that's what, you know, I'm I'm not a big proponent of go see a Broadway show, go see an off-Broadway show. I would like to just go see a show. And actually, the people who did the, um, the survey results, there is, and I forget the exact stats, but there is that of one out of five, there's a couple people that just want to see a show. They don't really even yet know, and that's what I want to do is blur the line. Look, the, we call it off-Broadway. Whoever came up with that name was a horrible marketing person. I mean, it says off in
2: the title. Because it's about what you're not instead of what you are. Exactly. And
6: back then, it was something cool. We're off, we're hip, come see us, we're edgy. Economically, we can't afford to be that anymore, in my opinion. So what Mm -hmm. I hope that the tour will do for us is blur that line a little bit. Put us next to Spamalow, put us next to Wicked, all those shows. And then when it's come to New York, it's, I just want to see Alter Boys.
5: And certainly, I Love You has had that bounce back, I think, that as, as it's gone across the country, there is a sense of people saying, oh, I saw that at home. I'd like to see it in New York. And we're – the off-broadway is actually a d- defined – is a geographically desi- defined area by equity, and we're one block off of that. Um, so we're very close to Times Square, and that helps. Because one of the problems with Off-Broadway is it's, it's, it's in the village, it's in, you know, it's way south of here. It's where the streets get confusing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the streets in Midtown for tourists are very clear, and it's, it's uh, north-south, you know, numbers, all of that is very clear. Well, the
2: most confusing example would be the theatre that The Fantastics is in right now, which is literally on Broadway, but because of the size of the house, it's an off-Broadway theatre. So so the distinction continues to blur. But do you think – Alan, I'm curious, what Ken has said about the dis- no distinction, your feeling, you were saying earlier, you think that there still needs to be a definition of the difference between the I two. guess it depends on the show that you're producing.
4: Uh, uh, um. You know, I, 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 I think there's validity in trying to have no distinction and having people seeing I- every possible show. I just think that, that uh, we do better. We are able to separate ourselves from the Broadway world, grab more attention, uh, be able to have greater focus and media attention I- I- if we go to the edgier material. Uh, because the critics like the edgier material. Off-Broadway's been more critic-friendly in terms of the the straight plays that it's done over time than, than, than Broadway but the has.
6: The material isn't actually proving that successful either off bra- I mean, some of the shows – I love you, You're Perfect, you know, no offense, I don't consider that edgy material. Well, Blue Man and
4: – Blue Man and Stomp But Bug it, is it, an, an edgy show. Right. Oleana was an edgy show. Killer Joe. Killer Joe was an edgy show. Ed, uh, there, there are a lot of shows. I all mean, those shows have closed. I mean, that, that's th- the But and they all had good runs. Uh, but, what, but that's
6: the thing. I mean, Killer, Killer Joe, I don't believe, I don't know, but doesn't have the brand recognition across the country, isn't, isn't you know, it, being done at theatres all over the place.
5: Mm-hmm. I don't know so if we know that, but, but I don't think it's ever going to. It's very it, – it's so edgy, I mean, I, that it falls off that economic model. It's, it was successful in New York. I think it paid back. And I'm sure that some people are doing it across the country, but it's never going to have that huge name recognition that uh, the odd couple has. Well, it's not going to be done in dinner theatres. Take
4: Oleana for an example, which was a David Mamet show, which which I and a number of people did uh, down at the Orpheum Theatre just before Stomp came came in. We had a a year-and-a-half run. We more than tripled our investment uh, on that show. It became a cause celeb. In, in, in New York City. We took it to London. We recouped that show in five weeks in, in, in London. Mark did a revival of that, that.
3: Which recouped and made money in London, it, as well. So. It, uh, what year was
6: that?
4: Well, his revival uh, last year, a year yeah. before – In be- London? It, it, yeah. In, in, uh, in, but in, what year
6: was the original here that happened? Uh, uh, Thirteen image? years ago. Okay. So that, and that, for me, is – and there is room, certainly, for of your material off-Broadway, and I encourage it. What – if we're going to say that it's a place for edgier stuff, we also can't complain if the people aren't rushing to see it.
4: Well, I, I don't think those are uh, mutually exclusive. I think people will rush to, to, to see edgier ma- material faster than they will rush to see uh, 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 softer material, uh, because it creates a, 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 a groundswell of people who, who are, are in the know in the first circle of, of audience members off Broadway, which is, as we all know, critical mass is the most important thing about a show, getting a large number of people into it as quickly as possible to get word of mouth out there. Uh, you know, can I point to an edgy show uh, – uh, well, Lieutenant w- was it was an edgy show, which should have run off-Broadway, which, you know, ran to Broadway, a- and because the cost structure on Broadway I- I- is even worse for plays than, than it is off-Broadway, uh, uh, didn't make it. Uh, you know, is there room for for event, for uh, uh, more universal musicals, and for edgier material off Broadway? Certainly, certainly there is, and I, I don't mean to denigrate any of those th- three categories. I've participated in all three of those categories happily, and made money in each of those th- three categories. But if we want to try to to, to uh, uh, get attention to, to off off Broadway, to differentiate us. Your point is, we don't want to differentiate us. My point is, I do want to differentiate us, uh, because I think it is more valuable to differentiate us and t- to get more focus and attention on us, and therefore create larger and larger well, audiences. Well,
3: I think, I think if if we don't sell the specialness of off-Broadway, the, the intimacy that, right. that really doesn't exist in a Broadway theatre, then, you know, we're, we're fighting our the battle against, you know, the $75,000 a week paycheck of the advertising budget of Broadway with our with our six, you know, eight, ten, twelve thousand dollar Off-Broadway budget. And that's a really hard battle to win. So it's, it, it is necessary – I mean, I don't know how it translates into actually what you do, but in fact, um, celebrating the, the the uniqueness of the Off-Broadway experience, the fact that you're sitting within five or six rows of the stage, the fact that, you know, you, you – you, you th- wh- as Nancy mentioned earlier, we're selling the idea that you're, you're, you're there, you're alive, you're in the room, and you're a part of it. And it's a very different thing to be a part of something, you know, with three hundred people than it is to be with, you know, fifteen hundred people. I mean, it's just a different experience.
5: But I do think we need to change the model. Um, and I'm trying to change the model. I have a project this season. Um, I have a holiday show. Um, New York City is not very responsive to holiday shows, unless you're Radio City. Um, Madison Square Garden pulled it off, but these are giant venues that had giant holiday shows with huge audiences, t- with huge title recognition. So I have a holiday show, not about Christmas, not about Hanukkah, about New Year's Eve. It should really only play the holidays. It's going to run eight weeks at the Daryl Roth Theatre. And um, it was – the way you get a theatre off-Broadway is you stand in line. You have to be behind someone. But I needed something that would only happen at the holiday. So we just got a theatre, because there happened to be an opening of eight weeks at the theatre. It's a band called Groove Lily, very edgy and mainstream both. um, uh, And hopefully we can – we're capitalizing it to do two years. So we can do it this year, and we can do it next year because we would like to bring it back every year. And if we're successful this year, someone will say, I want you in my theater this year.
2: That's what we hope will happen. No one had bought anything of her the whole day, nor had anyone given her even a penny.
5: Wouldn't you think tonight of all nights when the snow lays a blanket on the ice-laden street streetlights? that a match would come in handy in the dark Excuse me sir, pardon me Would you like to see my matches for
1: sale?
2: As we go through this discussion, the pronoun we keeps getting thrown around both obviously in individual productions, but even in the idea of what off-Broadway has to do to to build its awareness. Are there particular efforts? Is there enough are there enough resources within the people who are working off-Broadway to deal with the results of this survey, to put things into play, or does a survey like this still only influence the individual shows and how they choose to do their work?
6: Part of, I think, you know, I – unfortunately, I wasn't here when the kind of off-Broadway movement started, but part of what I hear, its success was, it was about this theatre that existed in the alleys and, and where no one could find you. The unions couldn't find you, those sort of things. It was, let's do the edgier stuff, and it was about the individual. And what I have been a huge proponent of is those days are over. One, the unions have found us. And I think they can help us as well. I mean, union performers and all this sort of thing, we can level our, our, uh, we can raise the level of our productions, et cetera. So I'm a big fan of getting everyone together. And this survey was, was the first kind of, I think, result of that. There's a group um, that works along with the league as well called, uh, we refer to ourselves as the Off-Broadway Brainstormers, which is about 50 to 75 people. Um, Started by Beverly McKeon, who's the executive director at New World Stages, who, you know, was faced with a couple empty theaters and didn't understand why. And she had just moved to the country. And she said, well, when we can't understand why, let's get everyone in a room and talk about it. And we did. And for the first time, all of these people came out from the woodwork and the alleys and saying, hey, I have that problem too. I have that problem too. Let's talk about the steps that we can take together. One of those things that we we pushed for was this... um, the survey another major initiative was for the first time and we're still actually struggling to make this work is to uh, get the off-broadway producers to share information including their grosses and what they're doing I was a uh, chair of kind of an economic subcommittee based on this new economic model and one of the things that came out was well I I believe that you have to see what your what the market can bear before you design a budget before you create this let's see how many people are coming Let's see what, how, uh, what the average gross is off-Broadway, and let's create a model that fits within that. So hopefully we can maintain some economic viability within what the market is doing. So, and that was a struggle. To be very honest, there are still a lot of off-Broadway producers that I, d- I don't want to share my numbers.
2: Well, why Once upon th- a time, they were reported in variety, just yeah. like the Broadway grosses.
6: And, and I understand I, – I under, the, the irony is a lot of us report our numbers to unions, et cetera, but we didn't want to share it with each other. Which, which was, uh, for me, a little mind-boggling. But and here was way we got to use these numbers to our advantage. We talk about new economic model. Well, here it is. We, di- we, we got results from about 14 to 15 shows over a six-month period. We averaged them out. And average about 200 people a night are coming to Off-Broadway. So the old idea, when people talk about, let's go to a 499-seat house, why? There aren't Off-Broadway shows selling out 499-seat houses. So let's let's start take a look at how many people are coming, let's start to take a look at what the average gross is per week, and figure out ways where we can produce within that model. The old general manager trick, and I'm one of them, I was a company manager and general manager for big Broadway musicals for years, and what we always do is say, here's how it looks in a 350, here's how you'll recoup in a 500, here's how you'll recoup in a 2,000 seat house. Well, just because you're in a bigger house, especially off-Broadway, doesn't mean that you're going to fill it. In fact, the numbers that we got proves that. We're not filling it. I hope to one day bounce those numbers Mm. up, but at the moment, we have to concentrate on uh, what we have to work with. Uh, I –
4: can I disagree with your premise. So, uh, uh, the reason to have a 500, 499-seat house is called The weekend. Witches they don't or come.
6: I'm in mean, arguably the most successful off-Broadway musical to open in the last few years. I would not sell out a 499 seat house well, in the yeah, weekend. And with what the theater owners are charged, this is the and uh, talk about economic model problem. What I have to do is pay rent for a 499 seat house for one week a year, Christmas, for a 52 uh, for those couple of weekends that I may sell more than my 350 or more than the 200. It does not. The model that well. To we're, we're still s-
4: selling out at Stomp on on Saturday nights. Uh, 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 and how many seats are you there? Three hundred and forty-seven. Okay. Okay. Uh, when I just did Billy Conley, or I didn't do it. Uh, Arnold Engelman right. did, did Billy Conley at, at Thirty Seven Arts. He sold out four hundred ninety-nine seats for m- most of his shows, but uh, uh, particularly uh, Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, 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 it's it's. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, on shows that are not, uh, you know, absolute sell sellouts, those are lesser houses, and they bring the average down for the
2: week. But Friday, Saturday, uh, uh, that's when you need the, the capacity. And is, that's probably no different than on Broadway as well. There are shows that are right, soft, but, great. you know. Yeah, I think that the
5: weekends are strong, and you sell out your weekends, and then people say, oh, I can't go on Saturday, so I guess I'll go Tuesday.
4: Uh, Off-Broadway, we have a slight advantage, because we do a five-show weekend. Uh, uh, Friday to Saturday to Sunday, mm. uh, 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 but you know that's my experience but in today's world. Uh, if you're are
6: you p- selling out Fantastics on the weekends?
3: Yeah, we we sell out quite a few performances could when you, you say sell the weekend. Four ninety nine. Do you think you could sell forty nine? No, but that's why we produced it in a two hundred seat theater. Um, but on on the other hand. You know, one of the next shows that I'm going to produce, Mayumana, I wouldn't think of doing it in anything other than a 499-seat theatre. It wouldn't work. I couldn't afford to do it. I mean, it's it, – you well, know, there are a lot of things you
6: just can't afford to do if you only have but 200 seats. And, and my counter for that is, you say you can't afford to do it on paper. Mm-hmm. What we're trying – what I think is, we've got the data now that says, this is the average of what you're going to gross, regardless you're with But that's, the problem with, you using, your
4: that's your the problem with using an average, Ken. It, it, it doesn't hold. Uh, 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 that data doesn 't uh, it doesn 't translate into I- anything you 're taking an average across the board If you take an average of failed shows and add them to successful shows you 're going to bring down the number of seats as uh, as an average The mean will drop. So, but then you're like only
6: d- producing for a smash hit again. I mean, that's the thing. What uh, I'm trying to do is create an economic model uh, uh, that exists well, for I, I, something God in bo- the Well, God
4: bless you, and I, and I hope you can. But this has been a business since the 18th century that has always been abo- about smash hits. It's not been about marginal shows. Do we get some occasionally? Yes. but But most of them – the shows that run and run for, for a long period of time at a success reach a level of success. It's like a glider. You've got to get high enough to go far enough. Uh, uh, so you know, most of – I mean, I, I hope your model works and I hope you're successful in making it work. As a landlord, uh, I would be the first person benefited by, by it, but it's not my experience. My experience I- I- is we're going to have the one to two shows a year that are going to be hits. And they're going to sell out their run as long as they're a hit. And as Nancy noted before, if their ticket prices are, are, are at full price when they initially are, are hit, they can sail for another couple of years, discounting their tickets. And if they institutionalize themselves, then they can go on for five, six, seven, eight, eight years. That's my experience. Uh, 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 you know, I'm certainly willing to look at a at a new model. And if you can make it work. God bless you. I, I, I hope it does work. It'll help me.
2: Now, we're talking about economic models, and I want to come back to the issue of whether Off-Broadway can sell the perception and the value of going to Off-Broadway. Can there be the Off-Broadway Got Milk campaign? Is that something that the Off-Broadway League w- has looked at? And is that feasible again in working in an arena where the economic means by inevitably are more limited? Well, Mark should answer that. I have a different opinion, but (laughs) (laughs) I
4: I think the answer is uh, certainly
3: with the brainstormers. It's something that people are looking at. Um, Where we would find the money to pay for such a campaign is a big question mark. And I think um, even Ken says that he's not sure that that selling the idea of off Broadway is is you know what he wants to do. He's more interested in blurring the lines. So I don't think that there will be, like, a consensus, that, that, that that's the ultimate answer to how, how we're going to solve the issues of Off-Broadway. I do think there are certain things that we've learned from the focus groups that we, that we conducted that tell us that one of the things that people like about Off-Broadway is that it is, it is a spontaneous thing, or it can be a spontaneous thing. It's spontaneous
6: for, to go to it? To or go spontaneous? to it. To, oh, okay. to
3: go to it. That for a Broadway show, it's a commitment. You know, you know it's going to cost a couple hundred dollars just for the tickets. If you're going to spend that much money on tickets and you need the babysitter, you want to make an event of it, you want to have dinner at a nice restaurant, you want to park, it's a big deal. You know, it's like it's a huge dollar commitment. And you don't want to make a mistake. So therefore, you want to go to uh, a musical that you've heard of. You want the stamp of approval of the New York Times. You want as much absolute certainty as you can get from that experience. Off-Broadway, the value is different. The price point isn't as high, tickets are more available, and it doesn't have to be such a big deal. It's closer to the idea of going to a movie. It's not going to a movie. It's still a much bigger deal, because it's much more expensive. But with a movie, it's like, if I don't like it, big deal. You know, it costs ten, eleven dollars. And and an Off-Broadway show, we still have some traction to the idea that the spontaneity the idea that you can take a flyer on an off-Broadway show, there's an audience in New York that feels that way. And I think part of the key to us succeeding is to figure out a way to encourage people who feel that way, find those
2: people, and remind them about that fact and get them to come more often. Part of what you're saying, then, is that there are perhaps – there's less at stake, there's less expectations out of what both – they have to invest in the experience and what they're going to take out of the experience. Nancy, do you think that's true, that people somehow expect less when they go to an off-Broadway show, or will accept something? you know, that that's noticeably less produced than what that, you see That on isn't Broadway. what I was saying.
3: I, I mean, that wasn't my point, that they expected less. No, no, not as specifically. I'm, I'm, delivering I'm teasing
2: less. that out. Okay. okay but, you, but do they have to deliver every bit as much, even if the price point is less?
5: I think from an emotional experience, yes. Unfortunately, we seem to ha- feel like we have to deliver chandeliers and helicopters and gigantic effects, and that's trickled down to Off-Broadway in, I think, a detrimental way, because I the, the physical productions become so overburdened. And it, nobody I, – I don't think that's what people go to see shows for, because now that we can morph on TV and movies, we can't ever compete in legitimate theatre with physical uh, effects. Um, and so I think we it's about the emotional experience, but I, unfortunately, I think our directors and our designers and our producers feel like, oh my gosh, I've got to protect myself, I have to have a a huge physical production because I'm charging $110 for tickets. But if the emotional experience is is, uh, amazing, it, it, it does the pr- price doesn't matter, except going in the door, which is what Mark's saying. Is that what we're doing is we're, people will experiment for $25 or $35, but do you experiment? And that's where Off-Broadway makes me nervous. I don't think $75 is an, is an experimental price anymore. Um, but when we did the original little shop, the price was $35.
4: But it was the highest price. that was the, the highest the price, and
5: it. now it's, you know, more than double that, because theater ticket prices whether it's Broadway or off Broadway have not gone with inflation they are so many they're gig geometrically higher proportions than inflation.
4: But you can still get a very inexpensive ticket to most off-Broadway shows. And
5: right? so and on Broadway as well, which yeah, is the yeah, b- biggest b- competition b- 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 b-
4: just because the retail price this is New York folks, you know, y- you don't have to pay retail for every everything. You can find ways of of, of seeing shows at a lot cheaper prices than what's marked on uh, on the ticket and those tickets are out there uh, whether it's through TDF, or TKTS, uh, or private discounting that th- each of the shows do. Uh, uh, you know, N- Nancy's touched on, on one issue, which I- is a trend towards overproduction uh, 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 off Broadway, which you know is, in what Ken's talking about, trying to find a new economic model, uh, a lot more money are spent on shows than should be spent on shows. I don't think the quality of, scenically or lighting-wise or sound-wise, it, it merits the amount of money that is spent on them now, vis-a-vis the, the uh, uh, 25, 30 years ago in which, you know, the technology would not allow us to spend that, that, that much money. Uh, the play is the thing. Uh, uh, the material is the most important part, part of it. Uh, I think our insecurities as producers uh, uh, and uh, creative people uh, cause us to, to throw money at situations which creativity should be used more than dollars.
6: I'll, I totally agree with that. I mean, there's I, – although I, I disagree with Nancy a little bit on that, I don't think people are price-resistant. I think they're value-resistant. We live in this, you know, extra-value meal society now, where people will often, you know, they just want the chips and the soda along with it, and they'll spend more money than just the sandwich. We – something I do at the Awesome 80s Prom, is, which is an interactive, you know, club theatre-style event. I have tickets $49.99, $59.99 includes a drink, a photo, and a piece of 80s candy. Up to $89.99, they get open bar and reserved seating. And we sell an inordinate amount of those special package prices. And I, as a producer, actually net more money when they buy those packages. But they think they're getting so much more. There's a value attached to it. And the value is, of course, in the content. The content is what it's about. People pay, and to use a movie analogy, people pay $10, $12 to see Titanic the movie at $100 million or whatever it is, and they p- pay ten bucks to see the Blair Witch Project. And it's about the content and making sure the content satisfies the experience. But I don't think people – kn- I mean, yes, they wanna, they'll obviously always want to pay the cheapest amount that they can. But every time we notch up, the reason it keeps notching up is that people keep, you know, people keep buying the tickets. Yeah, I t-
4: let me just mirror just slightly uh, on that, I, you know, and Mark can speak to this since he w- was part of the creation of the premium seat. Concept, Uh, uh, but you know, when I have shows in the theaters that people want to see, the premium seats, the seats that are inordinately highly priced, are the seats that go first. Right. Uh, 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 It's not the cheaper seats. Uh, uh, We go dead with more cheap seats than we do with higher-priced seats. So. uh, there are lots of ways to see shows at very inexpensive levels. Most people don't want to see them at that level. They would rather pay, uh, uh, as Mark said, the, the, the highest price for something they're sure is a hit.
6: Well, the location, what we constantly hear from the, from the people is that what they want is a good seat. Yeah. It's not cheap right off the bat. Every focus group, that it's they want to know where they're sitting and that it's good. good.
5: But there's an audience that really doesn't feel that they can afford seventy-five or a hundred dollars for tickets, and I believe we're w- when in order to run years, you have to have a huge number of people, lots and lots of people, and there are people that you that can't won't go unless they can get that discount.
4: Yeah, well, well I mean, I mean, we
5: you, we can have this argument for days. You know, but I,
4: I, I think the discounts available uh, in most shows. Uh, uh, You know, you can do rush tickets uh, uh, an hour before the show in in many theaters for $25 to see a show that costs $75. You can go through all the discounting venues. You can see those shows at a reduced price if you want to work at it. If you don't want to work at it, uh, you can call the ticket broker and pay $400 a
6: we are in a – you know, and it was actually the internet, I think, that started the discounted-minded society that we're in now. Because they're the ones that, like the theater, had inventory that at a certain point was dead. They had empty, you know, plane seats. And if they couldn't sell them, there was no – just lost money. So they started blasting these last-minute weekend fairs, which is what I believe started this kind of internet craze of discounting. And there was a book about um, Walmart where they said, you know, people in America now – feel entitled to a discount. It is no longer just, oh, I'm lucky to get one, uh-uh. It is part of our, like, the fabric of, of the American now that I feel like I deserve a discount. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge to us, because the $21 tickets, while I love when, you know, to get in the members of TDF, they're not gonna make my show run for a long period of time if I sell, you know, a couple hundred twenty dollars tickets per night.
2: Yet, at the same time, we have a phenomenon like now the premium seating on Broadway, and people who will pay whatever it takes to get the best seat. Mm-hmm. Your, your scenario on uh, Awesome Eighties Prom, you give them something at each step of the way. When you buy more, the more premium seats on Broadway, what you're getting is convenience. You can Because of the price, they're probably more available. Is, is, does that model relate to Off-Broadway, or is that a Broadway phenomenon?
3: It, um, no. I, I mean, I Love You has premium seats, The Fantastics has premium yeah. seats, and there's nothing – I mean, they're, they're good locations, but they're not – you don't get anything else other than and the seats. And you seat. could have
5: certainly have bought a ticket at the box office uh, comparable to it, but, but there is a value to it. But your TDF people, they go to everything. And that's the difference, is the people who buy premium seats don't go to everything. They don't say, oh, I'm going to buy a premium seat for every show. There is. I'm going to pick the show I want to see and buy a premium seat. And that's where my concern is, is that there are so many entertainment dollars, and Off-Broadway isn't always getting them.
6: And that's the the premium seat. There's always someone that wants to fly first class. There's just always someone that wants to sit in the front of the plane and that's the premium seat i think started on broadway because with the producers it was the only way to get in the door people wanted to see matthew and nathan and they couldn't get in so they sold a premium now off broadway again we have a supply and demand problem off broadway we can't fill eight shows a week so the premium ticket is a harder sell there for me because they can get in whenever they want so what i do and we have one on alter boys we have a you know, a heavenly VIP package where I give them a CD, a T-shirt, and meet the boys, which, of course, doesn't cost me anything. And I have a value um, uh, opportunity when hopefully we can encourage them to buy more, because I know they can walk up and just get any ticket, unlike the producers.
4: Well, uh, on Billy Conley, which basically sold out its run, we sold out the premium seats first. Mm -hmm. You know, know, um, it's just when, when and the Fantastics, which you know, some performances are sold
3: out, some aren't. We we sell a number of premium seats to non-sold-out performances. There are only two hundred seats in the theater, so you know every single location is a good view <laughs> of, yeah, of the yeah, stage. Let, let it's me not just about say that.
4: One little thing about premium seats, which which part of the motivation for premium seats it was to deal wi- with scalpers, uh, 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 so that that money at least that was spent on tickets would come back to the production, as opposed to, you know, somebody in New Jersey uh, 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 who has a post office box uh, uh, who, who's collecting a lot of uh, uh, money that should go to, you know, all the uh, royalty participants as, as well. So th- that was also part of the motivation on Premium Suits.
2: We've been talking a great deal about economics and business of Off-Broadway, but I want to come back to certainly what has been a theme through here, which is, what the actual experience is in those theaters? What are people getting? And as producers, what what is the kind of work that you look for, or indeed maybe working on right now that you believe is going to be successful off Broadway work? Can you've actually developed shows, you've originated shows. It's not about finding you know that there's a script and you put together a, th- a team. What's what's next what's in in, in your uh, stable? Well, I'll tell you. I mean,
6: I. To go back to how we started, with the Blue Mans and and, uh, these types of more unique theatrical experiences which tend to find an an easier way in off-Broadway, is I'm developing something that is exactly that. I optioned the rights to a website called My First Time which is exactly what you think it's about. Uh, It's anonymous submissions by people from all over the world telling about their first sexual experience. And the amazing thing is these stories range from teenagers to people in their 50s, heterosexual, homosexual, rape, absurd, comic, everything you can imagine. And this website was started by two documentary filmmakers who wanted to do a film about it. And it exploded overnight, and a book was done and a series. And now I'm taking all of this stuff, and uh, adapting it into a uh, four-person, two-men, two-women, vagina monologues-esque evening where these people are telling these real-life and true stories. Mark, you
3: mentioned, uh, I believe, your next show. My next show is uh, a, a show called Mayumana, which is in the genre of Stomp and Blue Man. It's a, a nonverbal performance piece that actually comes from Israel, and, um, you know, it's a terrific – it's very different than, the, than these other shows but it still shares that, that nonverbal performance quality. And, um, you know, and, and I didn't go looking for the next <laughs> stomp. I mean, that's the funny thing is that I think over our careers, Nancy and I certainly and Alan and probably even Ken, you know, have been offered the next Little Shop. So many people tell us this is the next Little Shop or the next stomp. When w- the, the very first show that my partners produced was Penn & Teller, and we got offered <laughs> magic shows for years fine, and years fine. and years, and had no interest in – you know, magic was actually called the M-word when we produced <laughs> that show. We would never <laughs> use the word magic to describe it. So, um – but anyway, you know, I'm excited about this, because it – it found me, and I think it's – you know, it's a – it's a wonderful new show. For you know, for off Broadway, and, and and, I think and it'll why work. is
2: it an off Broadway show as opposed to a Broadway show?
3: Well, we we certainly contemplated you know whether Broadway would be hospitable. I think that that because this is a show that you can't really describe. Um, you know, it's like one of the things when we struggle for with the words to describe this sh- this show, Myumina. It's how does it relate to Stomp? How does it relate to Blue Man? These other shows, and that's never a way you really want to describe a show. So I think that, by definition, it has to be discovered by the audience. And Off-Broadway is a better place to discover shows, because Broadway, you put it up there <laughs> and it's either a hit or you just cannot sustain the economics for very long before it has to close. I mean, you know, Off-Broadway, the reason a show can take six months or a year to find an audience is that if the running costs are sixty or $80,000 a week, which unfortunately is what, you know, these shows are, you know, a sort of best case, probably, um, then, you know, you can lose a certain amount of money every week as that, o- as that show finds its audience. Uh, on Broadway, you know, if you lose a hundred grand a week, after ten weeks, you've lost a million dollars. And so you just cannot do – you know, you can't sustain that. So therefore, Discovery is possible off-Broadway, and it's not on Broadway.
2: Nancy?
5: Oh, the, this is um, – this – The Groove Lily show called Striking Twelve, it's something about every three or four years, I hear something or hear about something, Bat Boy in 2000. And um, I came across uh, Striking Twelve about three years ago when it was in the National Alliance Musical Theatre Festival, which is an insider buyer's market festival that's every fall in New York. Uh, And I said, this needs a wider audience. So I have an incredible passion about the band, about this show. They're going to be fabulous mm-hmm. musical theatre – they already are fabulous musical theatre writers. They have two new musicals they're going to be writing. They perform and act, and s- thanks to Sweeney Todd, that's now not un- a <laughs> <laughs> that's now standard for music. That's like accepted in the musical theatre, because John Doyle's wonderful work. Uh, and there, it's, it's – but it's uh, um, I think it's going to have huge life across the country, and the world needs to see it. So when I produce, it's out of passion.
2: Alan, new projects? I'm developing a couple
4: projects, I, but I, I'm a landlord first and, and a producer only out of passion, as, as, as Nancy says. I, I have to fall in love with a piece of material, and I'm going to spend two years of my life developing so- something. I, it, it, it's not an intellectual decision. Uh, uh, it's a decision that, 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 that I fall in love with the material, I'm willing to spend the time and emotion a- and money. Uh, uh, developing material, I'm I'm looking at a couple things. Uh, I have a piece under option called "Dark Deceptions," which which is a a séance sh- show because I'm in, and, and it's a debunking of séance because I think that we need to get away from the uh, uh, non-scientific. Uh, uh, spiritualistic, uh, uh, motivated world that people are trying to push themselves into and start looking towards things that that are real. Uh, So I'm going to play both sides of the fence
2: with this show. And let me ask you, since you say you're first a landlord, (laughs) you're someone that these people probably do come to and talk about whether or not they might want to have their shows in one of your theatres. Or you might be going to them and saying, you know, I'd like to have your show in one of my theatres. What kind of criteria are you looking at when deciding what's going to get on your stages? Well, give me two shows f- from which to choose, and and uh, I'll, I'll make an aesthetic judgment.
4: Give me one show, a- a- and I'll make a financial <laughs> judgment. Uh, 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 give me three shows, uh, I'll, I'll I'll make an aesthetic and, and artistic uh, 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 choice. It all depends on what's in the marketplace. I can. I have to film my theatres, I have responsibilities to investors. So uh, uh, sometimes I can make choices and sometimes I can't. Uh, what do I look for? I, 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 I look for things that, that, that are edgier, that, that, that satisfy my desires to have people see something they haven't seen before. And my success over the years has been finding those shows, like Little Shop at the time, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like a number of shows that, that Mark and I have d- done together, including Stomp, you know, people Stomp is so mainstream now. People forget how edgy it was w- when we did it 13 y- years ago. So I look for that that kind of material, and I I, I look for good writing, a uh, uh, good conception. Uh, 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 you know, it's, it's it's a subjective judgment, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, 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 I got to fill the spaces, and so. Uh, if there's a show out there that, that maybe it'll run for six months uh, uh, and it's not my favorite piece of material, I- I'll probably take it. But if it's put up against something that, that's a little greater risk and has the potential, I, I, I think, to satisfy me, uh, I'll go for that.
2: As we wrap up, I want to ask very quickly, quick answers from each of you. We talked about the pendulum is perhaps swinging back. What? Are the signs that we look for for real health off Broadway, in the commercial theater, the theaters being full <coughs> and good shows in them. <laughs> for me,
6: it's um, a sign that shows are starting to achieve more of a, a economic profitability, viability, and able to sustain themselves for a longer period of time.
5: I think it's. I, I think our I think the the internet finding off Broadway in a way that's just beginning to touch is huge because they think that that's how people are going to look for things. That's how we we um, that's how we find things in the world today.
4: Well, well, the purest sign of success off Broadway is full theaters. So that, I concur with Mark that that's that that's the first sign when when, when everything's full and shows are running. Uh, Has that
5: ever happened?
4: <laughs> sure. It has happened it's a <laughs> micro, it's a, it 's a micro it is a microsecond
5: nanosecond right
4: so it, 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 it goes away, but you know, what it really happens is, is when you have a, a lot of long running shows that, that that take occupancy in, in a lot of theaters, and then there are only a couple theaters available, and then best of all possible worlds, some of the shows that come into those theaters are are hit. And and that's what causes backup contracts and shows waiting in the wings for for Off-Broadway theatre. Alan's measure of success is a lot of backup (laughs) (laughs) contracts. And our measure (laughs) is
5: having having the theatre price reduced, because there's not enough product.
2: (laughs) Well, you can have your cake and eat it, too. (laughs) On that note, we need to wrap up. Thank you all for your insights about Off-Broadway. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York with our partners, CUNY TV. For everyone at the American Theatre Wing, thanks for joining us.